Now, too often, too often we're, people are more like chickens than Jesus, aren't they? We do surround somebody. And like the, the intersection last week, I called last week um, uh, uh, coffee shops and water Water coolers, because it's just that, that hanging around and talking to other people, and Jesus goes to a water cooler, well, he goes to a well, and, and he's in need. I was encouraged this week, I just, just heard a story of somebody, they had a neighbor move in, and this neighbor moved into a very nice house, and they had this very nice outfitted exercise room, and, he, and, and, and they mentioned to me, hey, you guys want to come over and use the exercise room anytime, you know, you're most welcome, and what a great way to get to know somebody. They've invited you to come in and spend time with them. And our first reaction is what? Oh, I need to do something for, for them. I need to find a way to serve them. But here's an intersection that you've been invited into. And one of the things we talked about last week was to have a need. Be willing to need somebody else's help. And in the midst of being held by somebody else, there's that intersection of life where conversations can happen. Well, sometimes when those conversations happen, oftentimes when people intersect, it's centered on the criticism or the condemnation of somebody else. We're picking on somebody. And it doesn't take long when one chicken starts and then the rest of us join in, right? Right? And it's easy, you know, it's, it's not difficult to find fault with somebody else. And, and something in us wants to do it. Somehow we feel in some way better about ourselves if we've taken a few uh, swings at somebody else, if we've taken some shots, if we if we brought somebody else down a couple of notches. Somehow that makes us feel better about ourselves maybe. But it's, it's a common habit. What can I do? What can you do when we're in the midst of that awkward situation where I don't want to join the picking. I don't want to join the chickens, but what can I do to make a difference here? Well, the passage we're going to look at today, John chapter 8, is a passage where um, I call it the circle of critics, where people have gathered together and they are pointing out the faults of somebody. And they bring the person to Jesus and they say, well, what do you say about this? And if Jesus downplays the fault, if he downplays the sin, then he's going to seem to be against the law. He's going to be seen to be against Moses and against God's standards. If uh, Jesus um, joins in the chorus of condemnation, if he joins the circle of the critics, then what's going to happen? He's, 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 going, to, he's going to be seen as not a merciful person. That, that appeal of his grace and his mercy to the masses is going to be corrupted. What is Jesus going to do when he's confronted by the circle of critics? I want you to open your Bibles. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Actually, the chapter in a lot of our, our, our Bible translation actually picks up at the very end of, of, of verse 53. So we'll start there. They went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, and now in the law, rather, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What do you say? Okay, there it is. 
The, um, the circle of critics have posed the question, do you lean toward Moses or mercy? They're assuming that it's going to be one or the other. They're assuming if you're going to stand up for God's right standard, then you're going to have to cast mercy aside here. If you're going to hold on to mercy, then you're going to have to deny Moses and God's standard in order to do that. So they believe they've caught him in inconsistency one way or another. What do you say? They are not asking his opinion. They're not wondering, this is a difficult case. What should we do here? No, they seek to trap him. They seek to catch him in something that he's going to say. Verse 6, they said, they, they said this in order to test him. So they might bring some charge against them. That's why the scribes, the experts of the law, and the Pharisees and their extended interpretations of the law, that's why they, they have come together. In order that they can find some charge against Jesus, hopefully they know his bent toward mercy. And they're hoping they can bring back a report to the Sanhedrin. They can charge this rabble-rousing rabbi that he has contradicted Moses. And now they can finally have something that they can bring an official charge against him. Interesting, they're going to use Moses against them because in the last chapters, 5, 6, and 7, he has repeatedly showed them and reminded them how they themselves do not follow Moses, whom they claim to associate themselves with. So they're going to catch him between the support of the masses, people hungry for mercy. And it's interesting, often even critics... Often even those who are doing the picking are hungry for genuine mercy. We know what's down inside of us. That might be, like I said, why we criticize, why we want to condemn others, because we know our own needs. There's a hunger in us for mercy, and that was true of the people. You know, there's another part of the agenda here as well. Do you lean toward Moses or mercy? There's a diabolic agenda. What do I mean by that? Hell is involved here. You see, Jesus' ministry is at stake. His whole mission. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This is why Jesus came. So that whosoever believes in him would not perish, would not be judged, would not be condemned, but would have instead everlasting life. And verse 17 says for the son of man did not for the son of god did not come into the world to condemn the world but so that the world might be saved through him he did not come in order to judge this woman he did not come in order to condemn you and i the truth of the matter is we are condemned already by our own sin he came to save us from that condemnation one of the two possibilities here, A, they, can, they think they can get him to deny Moses, and then they've got him. They can file their charges, right? This is like the grand jury. Or, or maybe he will be true to Moses. Maybe he's stuck. Maybe he has to be true to Moses because they, they know that he is a teacher sent from God. So he's going to have to be true to Moses, right? And now they have sidetracked him off his mission and purpose of mercy. You see what's going on here? It's a, it's a plot right out of hell itself that would sidetrack us away from mercy and into condemnation. Can't you just imagine Satan making his accusation before all of heaven? 
as, as this plays out. And he can point to this woman who Jesus approves her stoning for her adultery. And, he can, and Satan points to this woman and he tells all of the angels of heaven, see, God doesn't really care about those that he says that he loves. That's what's going on here. This is much bigger than just that circle of critics. Okay, so there's the moment. There's the gotcha game that's going on. We see the same thing played out in our politics today, don't we? People are cynical today of any truth, of any real possibility of personal integrity because of what they see playing out over and over. Our media, our politicians, the self-centered selfishness of our culture have created this present Trump-Clinton election catastrophe. We have got the kind of candidates that our system and our culture, as it's pushed and promoted today, we have gotten what this produces. And there they are laid out before us, and we find it hard to believe. The ones that rail the most against the lack of integrity today are perhaps the ones that have been the spokesmen to cause it. People are going to play that gotcha game with you, aren't they? They're going to ask, well, if two people love each other, why deny them the right to marry? And now you got to respond, right? you got to say something. And, and in your response, it's kind of like Jesus. You're going to have to either seemingly deny what God has said in Moses and other places, or you're going to come across as hard-hearted and not caring toward these two people that just love each other. And so you're stuck or you could say, you could, you, could, you could redirect the conversation. Maybe you would say something like, well, two people, you say, but why not three or four? If you're going to change a definition of marriage that's been, that's been embraced, why, why not change it in these other directions? Or maybe, maybe we should fix what's wrong with marriage as it is before we try to change it into something that hasn't been embraced in, in human society up until now? What if we instead said, what's wrong with marriage as it is, rather than expanding this mess out further? Because marriage is messed up today. Our culture's done a good job of that. Maybe, maybe not accepting the question at face value. Maybe the question is stacked and loaded in some way that forces you to an answer because the best way to get the wrong answer is to ask the wrong question. So maybe the question needs to be redirected in a different direction. That's something about what Jesus does. Jesus takes and he circles the critics around. But before we get there, I have another question in this story. Here's this woman, and she has been caught in adultery, right? Does it ever strike you, as, as you're considering this, this story, does it ever catch your attention, how did that happen? Now, we, we can imagine in our heads as adults, okay, what the adulterous affair might have looked like, and it might have been romantic, it might have been very seedy. We don't know all the details of that, but probably it was private, well, to bring a charge, this, this, is a, 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 this is a provision law of Moses that's not brought up a lot in court because it required two witnesses. 
It required two male witnesses. It required two male witnesses of good, upstanding reputation in the community who were not involved in or related to either of the parties. Okay, they had to be, in that sense, disinterested witnesses who could give impartial testimony to the offense. In this, in this um, crime of adultery, how did those witnesses arise? How is it that they were there able to witness to catch in the very act? It smells like a setup. It smells like an October surprise, doesn't it? Oh, am I wandering into politics again? Does anybody think that this 11-year-old recording of Donald Trump was just now discovered in the last few days? Or has that been held on to for a while? Okay, fair enough. Does anybody think that WikiLeaks only now discovered in all of their hacked emails these transcripts from Hillary Clinton's uh, speeches on Wall Street? That just now they realized that she said these things and they put that out? No. Equally. Smells like a setup. Tit for tat. Timing is everything. And you and I are the ones, like the crowd that day, that gets manipulated in the process. Welcome to the circle of the critics. But Jesus instead circles the critics. This is kind of like, okay, here's my freeway analogy. Here's my freeway illustration put to work, okay? We were driving off into Portland yesterday. We were going to look at some cabinets, and, and we took the exit off the freeway just after Jansen Beach. You take that exit to 99E or W, I forget which it is, but, but you take just, I mean, you just veer ever so slightly to the right, just a wee little bit, you veer off and you're going down this, then all of a sudden you're turning around and around and around and around, you're going off in that direction. We did a 270 loop. We circled all the way around and all it took to start, all it took to make that happen, and once I was there, I had no choice. Fortunately, it was the way that we wanted to go, but I had no choice. We were, once we had just swerved a little bit off to the right, we were stuck in a loop that was going to carry us a completely different direction. That's called a freeway cloverleaf, right? They can be a good thing. They can be a bad thing. When I was in Atlanta for the, for the training preceding our India trip about a month or so ago, I got onto one of those, and it wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. <laughs> That's what happens to the scribes here. Jesus veers them off just a little bit, and he ends up taking them in a direction they never saw coming. Circle the critics. Look at, again at verse 6, about halfway through verse 6, and we'll keep reading. So they said this to test him that he might have, they might have some charge against him. Well, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said, Let him who is without sin cast the first, or be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one. They began to fade away. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Maybe some of the crowd that he'd been teaching before, but maybe they too, as they saw what he wrote, they begin to fade away. We don't know. And Jesus is standing, just he and the woman before him. So Jesus upholds Moses better than they. They asked Jesus, but he couldn't cast the first stone. He couldn't be the one to answer this question. What should we do with her? What do you say? Jesus can't say. Because Jesus wasn't a witness. 
He cannot be the one to condemn her here unless, unless they believe that Jesus is a witness because Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus knows everything that we've done. Ah, but they wouldn't admit that. So, okay, we're still stuck. So Jesus knows the law better than they do. They ask Jesus, what should he do? He's not a witness. Any witness must be reproach, be above reproach, be without sin themselves in this matter. What does Jesus do? He begins to write. And you want to know, don't you? So do I. What did he write? Oh, why isn't that in the story? I wish that was in the story. There's all kinds of great suggestions as to what did Jesus write. And we put what he might have written and the amount of really space you have to write in the sand sitting in one place. You can only write so much. And so scholars have even used that to try to suppose, using Hebrew lettering, what was it that he might have written. And he certainly could have begun to recite some of the commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Remember, where did these witnesses come from? A false witness could be telling a lie, or it could also be a setup that is designed to entrap somebody so that you can testify against them and use the law against them. Just like Queen Jezebel did to steal a vineyard and give it to her husband Ahab. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Maybe he wrote, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Maybe he simply wrote, For these men gathered around, he began to write a list of names. I like that one. A list of names. And the oldest to the youngest to see somebody they know in that list. And they back away. And all of a sudden, they want no part of stoning somebody caught in adultery. It's interesting. Has anybody asked the question, okay, if you go back to the law of Moses, who's to be stoned if they're caught in adultery? It's the man and the woman. Where's the man? Where's the man? Maybe he was the first one, actually, the first of her accusers to actually leave the scene. Jesus circles the critics. He turns it back around upon them. Maybe it was names. I was thinking about this discussion. You're going to be in a discussion this week probably. What about those Trump tapes? Can you believe it? Well, no matter which way, you, whether, no matter where you were planning to vote, I hope you're in one of those conversations. And I hope you have the, right, the opportunity there to say, you know, it got me thinking. There's things that I have said that I would be shamed if they were broadcast before everybody. There's things that I have said for which I would need. Has there ever been things that you have said that you thought were in private and you were careless and that if that was broadcast around the country, you would be shamed and have nowhere to hide? What about the things that echo around inside our own head that we're careful not to say? What about the things that we think about about other people? Yeah, that tape was horrible. That tape revealed a, a, a selfish, boorish person who would objectivize women for himself and his own entertainment. Yeah. Have you watched much TV lately? 
Have you used the internet lately? Our culture is inundated with that, and it's a huge problem because it's already in us. And we're easily enticed into just those kind of things. Yeah. Let's, let's circle the critics. Let's use an opportunity like this, and I, and I don't care about the politics of it at this level. This is an opportunity for us to pull the lid back just a little bit on the corruption that is in all of us and how we desperately need God's mercy. Circle the critics back around. Jesus sees past the question that's presented to the real issue. That's an interesting question. Why do you ask? Somebody came to me. You know, sometimes you want to be careful about the questions you answer. Somebody came to me once and they asked me if a, person would, if a, if a Christian would lose their salvation if they committed suicide. Now, there's a theological answer to that question. And that was not the time to give it. Not at all. Talk about ministry malpractice. The, 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 the thing to do there was, well, that's an interesting conversation. Why do you ask that question? We need to go further here. We need to unpack this a little bit to find out this was an individual that was, that was feeling de- very desperate about his own circumstances and, and providing for his family, and he thought the best way out with an insurance policy on the horizon to provide for his family was for him to be out of the picture and for me to give him theological assurance that that would be okay would have been a disaster, right? Sometimes the question that's asked is not the question to answer. But how can we circle around? Uh, Somebody described it this way once. Using what people are thinking about to get them to what they should be thinking about. Circling around from criticism to mercy. So Jesus circles the critics. He he goes past the, the question that presents to the real issue. Because when condemnation abounds... Our role is to show mercy. In fact, when condemnation abounds, that might be our very opportunity to show mercy. Look at verses 10 and 11. Okay, we just left off in verse 9. Jesus and the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Is there no witness left? Is there none who have said, I'm without sin in this matter? I am a witness who, 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 who cannot be impugned, I will take the first stone and throw it against her. Knowing their own sin, no. Could it be that the law's role in human history is not to go around condemning certain behavior, but the law's whole purpose is to expose our sin? And that's just how Jesus uses it here. Paul says, the law came that sin might abound. But how's that finish? But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. We need to have our sin uncovered and exposed so that we can wash our guilt away in God's mercy. So Jesus says, What? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When condemnation abounds, so mercy. We know John 3.16. We need to know John 3.17. 
If Jesus himself did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, then we don't go to condemn people either. We follow Jesus, not chickens, right? It's expressed very well in Matthew, or not Matthew, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, woman, what is good, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, that's us, to do justly, to do what's right ourselves, and to love mercy. I don't do justly purposely, perfectly, do I? Don't look at me like that. You don't either. I don't do justice perfectly, and so I love mercy for me. But truth be told, I want mercy for me and justice for you. I was watching the Seahawks last week. I was watching the Seahawks last week, and, and uh, oh, there, there was a time when Richard Sherman got flagged for pass interference, and I'm like, come on, that was nothing. Let him play. But boy, when they do the little, a little of that to my guy, where's the flag? Where's the flag, right? I want mercy for me, and I want justice for you guys. Oh, I want God to do what he should, except when it's me. Because I tend to judge myself by my intentions. I'll judge others by what I see or perceive to be their actions. Okay? When condemnation abounds, show mercy. Do justly and love mercy. Love mercy not just for me, but for others, and thus to walk humbly before God. God is the judge. I am not. God is God. I am not. Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah 22, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hands of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. Do justly yourself and love mercy for others and walk humbly with our God. In the circle of criticism, to love mercy is not merely withdrawing from the gossip. It's not merely withdrawing and abstaining from participating yourself. In the circle of criticism, to love mercy is to insert mercy into the conversation. In this story, in this story, you and I would find ourselves in at least one of three places. We're complex, so we might find ourselves in multiple places, but we'll find ourselves in one of three at least. You might, this morning, and you'll read it next week, you might find yourself in another place. Maybe this morning you find yourself in the position of the woman. You know your sin. You know you're guilty. Maybe you're afraid that others will find out. Maybe you're afraid that you will be held accountable for it. You know you're guilty. Well, Jesus' words to the woman are his words to you if you'll believe them. I do not condemn you. It's not what I came for, he says. He didn't come to condemn you. He came so that you might be saved. He came so that you, by believing in him and his death in your place, he loved you so much that he gave himself for you so that you could have eternal life in his name because of him in our place. You find yourself in the woman. Stand before Jesus, the one who will not condemn you, who will forgive you, 
who will save you. Not only save you, but enable you, strengthen you. He says, go and sin no more. Oh, the hunger for a new life. Do you long for that? We sang that song earlier about victory. Our victory is in him. Yeah. Forgiveness of sin and the indwelling of the spirit of the living God that he might enable us to bear his fruit, Christ-likeness in our lives so that we can be the ones to actually show mercy, bear mercy toward others. Maybe you find yourself like the crowd. Maybe you find yourself this morning and you remember very easily a time just now. Maybe it was with friends before church started, huh? Critiquing, criticizing someone. Talking about someone. Speaking judgment instead of loving mercy. Oh, there are things that are wrong. There are things that ought not be. But in the midst of that, in the midst of agreeing with Moses, don't cast mercy aside. In wrath, Habakkuk prays to the Lord. In wrath, remember mercy. Something in us needs to find fault. Something in us somehow feels better about ourselves. We can find fault in others. We can bring others down lower. We can feel better about ourselves. In fact, we might even make our soul feel like we don't really need Jesus so much. And there's the death of ourselves. No, no, loving mercy is good for you as, as much as it is for the people around you. I hope you'll find yourself in this next week, in this third way in the story, following Jesus, telling those who criticize, finding a way sensitively, tenderly, considerately yet genuinely, a way to show your own need for his mercy and their need for his mercy. That's what Jesus says. The one who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I would hate to think of the things that I've said in private being shouted from the rooftops, and yet God has heard it all. I need God's mercy. You need God's mercy mercy. Let's let's live there. Let us be the ones to go and, and sin no more. Let us even go beyond that. Let us go and give away this kind of mercy, this kind of forgiveness to the people around us, the people our lives will intersect with this week that desperately need it. I want you to join me in prayer right now. God, give me a chance. In the next couple of days, give me a chance in a moment of criticism, in a moment of talking about somebody, that you might give me the opportunity and the courage and, Father, just the remembrance, the the alertness of mind to remember to say something about my need, even their need for your mercy at just that moment. Father, would you use us like you used your son? Lord, that seems like something that would be beyond our ability to ask. And yet, that's the kind of prayer you said you would answer. And Father, for us to be like Jesus seems beyond us, and yet, he said it was better for him to go away, that, 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 that your spirit would come and indwell us, and that we would show your character and your likeness. We would speak for you to the world. So Lord, this week and the next couple of days, would you do that? Father, there's, there's a circumstance already that's in perhaps our minds, 
a conversation that's already happened, maybe one like that will occur. Lord, would you give us the alertness of mind to see a moment for mercy? Would you give us the courage to speak up even when we're not sure exactly how it'll come out? Would you help us to do that in humility, Lord, admitting first of all our own need for your grace and your mercy? And Father, since we come to that point, Lord, if perhaps in this morning, here and now, you have pressed upon us again a need for your forgiveness, for your cleansing. Lord, would, would uh, you give us the grace not to carry that guilt out of this room, but to right now to lay it before you. Lord, we confess our guilt. We confess that we fall short. We confess that we judge others. We confess that we ourselves are worthy of your judgment. And Father, we thank you for your mercy in Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.